falling out of my eyes. Not spiritual, not in the, like literal dirt was coming out of my eyes. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know that Saul had scales come out of his eyes. I didn't know a biblical, it was a biblical reality, but God had removed the dirty scales off my eyes. I've shared that testimony before, so I won't go into the detail. But I want to say five major things that are involved in Saul's spiritual rebirth that I think should be a part of everyone's born again experience. Number one, he had a personal encounter with Jesus. If you're taking notes, Jesus initiated it. Saul did nothing to deserve it. Just like my encounter, Jesus initiated it. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't qualified. I wasn't educated. And he has a personal encounter. That's Acts 9 verses 3 through 6. Number two, he surrenders his life to Jesus as the Lord. That's Acts 9, 5. This is essential. You have to surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. You can't sit back and just invite him. Lord, come in my heart. You have to surrender. Say, Lord, I'm giving you my life. You can be my Lord. Number three. Other Christians played an important role in Saul's conversion. They forgave him for the harm he'd done, and they accepted him, Acts 9.17, as a brother. Number four, Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's important. It might not be in America or according to the religious pastor you follow, but being filled with the Holy Spirit was important in the book of Acts, and it's important today. Number five, Saul's conversion was a personal conversion, but not a private conversion. Okay, this whole, everybody close your eyes, raise your hand and repeat the sinner's prayer and don't let anybody know this be a secret Christian is not gospel. It's not in the Bible. He was baptized and that's a public confession of his faith in Jesus. That's Acts 9, 18. He was also commissioned to be a witness for Christ and an ambassador for Christ. And he became part of Acts 9, 19, the believer's fellowship. Now I want to read you a quote from Billy Graham on conversion. Listen to what Billy Graham says about conversion. Conversion occurs when we repent and place our faith in Christ. But what is the process like as we approach the point of conversion? And then Billy Graham says the key word is variety. The night I came to Christ, Billy Graham says, there were several people around me weeping. I had no tears at all. And I wondered if my act of commitment was even genuine. Conversion is no less real to quiet people than to more expressive or dramatic ones. Jesus described the conversion experience like the movement of the wind in John 3, 8. Wind can be quiet and gentle, or it can reach cyclone proportions. So it is with conversion. Sometimes conversion's easy and tender. Other times it's a tornado which alters the entire landscape. And I couldn't agree more. Do not judge your conversion because you didn't have an Isaiah Saldivar experience. Do not judge your conversion because... Scales didn't come out of your eyes. You didn't hear the audible voice of God or something crazy didn't happen because we all vary in our conversion experience. For Matthew, it's going to the tax collector booth, pick up your cross and follow me. For Saul, it's knocking him on the ground and speaking to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not everybody's going to have this radical, dramatic conversion and that's okay. But don't compare your conversion to other people's conversions. Number five was Saul's conversion was personal, but not private. Okay. That was number five. So conversions can vary. Now I want to go over biblical terms for conversion. We're going to do a little bit of teaching here. I want to go through all the biblical terms of conversion. Number one is conversion. That's the term. And that's to turn to Christ, to change beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. That's Acts 15, three. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. So that's conversion. It's a change of beliefs. It's a change of attitudes. When you get saved, you are converted. Things are changed. You're, you go from death to life. And again, you can watch these on the replay. Don't stress out. Don't get stressed if you don't write them all. Next one is renewal. These are all words for conversion. Renewal. 
This is to restore spiritual life and relationship with God. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So that's the renewal. It's the restoration of spiritual life. It's building relationship with God. It's renewing of the Holy Spirit. Born again is becoming a child of God. When you receive Christ, you become a part of the God's family. That's John chapter one, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, he gave them right. Not everyone's a child of God, but watch what it says here. He gave them right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said, most surely I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. First John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God, notice again, born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. This idea of being born of the spirit or being born again and being born of God is a spiritual reality. It's not natural. It's not you pray the same prayer. It's you receiving Christ. You are born again. You become a child of God. He gave right to become children of God, not born by human decision, husband's will or natural descent, but born of the Holy Spirit, born of the spirit of God. You go from death to life. Your eyes are now open. You're now a spiritual being. You're born into the spiritual realm and you are now a citizen of heaven. You're now an ambassador for God. You're born again. Oh, how do I know if I was born again? If you were born again, you know if you were born again. I could say January 12, 2011, I was born again. I went from death to life. My life radically changed. I had a born again experience. That's being born again. Now, there's a lot of people that, oh, I went to church in this, but they're never, they've never been born again. And so you need to ask the Lord, Lord, I want to be born again. I want to receive you. I want your power. I want your anointing. I want you to change my life. I need you to transform every part of me. That's the born again experience. Resurrection. That's to become alive to God, ending the separation caused by sin. When you see spiritual death, you're talking about separation from God, okay? Adam and Eve, they went through spiritual death. They were separated from God. That communion they once had was gone. There's that chasm now. And so resurrection is when you become alive to God. We're not talking about physical yet. We're talking about spiritual. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And he and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So you were spiritually dead in which you once watched according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature of wrath just as the others. But God, here's the contrast, but God who is in rich, rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the age to, ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God has raised us up. That's spiritually dead. Now we're spiritually alive. Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Another term is new creation. This is becoming a new person. You become one of God's new people. You're all, you're made brand new when you come to Christ. Second Corinthians five seventeen. that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death by any means. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I have the wrong verse there. If any man be in Christ, he becomes a new creature. The old things are dead. Behold, all things are made new. That's a new person. That's a new creature. Okay. Receiving Christ. That's actively inviting or welcoming. This is not the sinner's prayer. Welcoming Christ into one's life. Romans chapter five, verses 10 through 11. Remember, this is written to Christians 
in Rome, not unbelievers. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall have been saved by his life. And not only that, we rejoice in the Lord our Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the, received the reconciliation. So we're receiving and we are being reconciled with Christ. We're receiving Christ. We're being reconnected to Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the, the word of reconciliation. Okay, Romans 10, 9. Now, this is another principle, saved. And that's rescued from the consequences of sin. That's another word um, when it comes to conversion, saved. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, you will be saved. And I want you to notice this is a future tense thing. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So it's not just, this is why I don't believe once saved, always saved. Salvation is not... I got saved, okay? I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want because I got saved. I got salvation. He says, you will be saved and it's unto salvation. So it's saying, listen, we're being saved. We're in this work of being saved. God is saving us. And when we receive Christ, we're reconciled back to him. We confess with our mouth. We believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead. He goes, you're going to be saved. Now, this contextually was... They were making them confess that Caesar was Lord in Rome. The money said Caesar is Lord. And Paul's writing the church in Rome who's being persecuted for their faith. And Paul is basically saying, do not confess Caesar is Lord. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And when they kill you, you will be saved. You're not going to go to hell. You're going to be saved because you're confessing that Jesus is your Lord. And so this was, again, written to believers, not written to those that were unbelievers. Okay, last term I want to go over is decision. And this is a willing choice you make to follow Christ. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is a decision you have to make to follow Jesus, okay? Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. So Paul gets radically converted, radically saved, and is now preaching Christ in the synagogues and preaching that Christ is the son of God. And verse 21, then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the one who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and those, and, and he has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill Saul, but their plot came known to Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. So here Paul comes or Saul comes supposed to be arresting Christians, and he's in the synagogue. They're all excited because here he is. He's persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. But here's what they didn't realize. Saul had an encounter on his way to persecute the Christians. And now Saul gets up and says the exact opposite of what the religious people thought he was going to say. And they go, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy who's supposed to be destroying the Christians that call on this name, but now he's preaching in this name? And that's what God will do. He will change everything. He will turn your life around. One encounter can change the entire direction. I hope I have a witness type one in the chat. One encounter can change the entire direction of your life. You go from cursing at God like I was to speaking on God's behalf. Now, Paul, the Bible says, confounded the Jews and proved that Jesus is the Christ. The fulfillment of Ananias' prophecy that Paul would suffer for Christ's name's sake had already started because now Paul is going to be going, I'm sorry, now Saul is going to be going from hunting Christians 
to being hunted by his very own friends that he was doing all his religious work with. Acts 9.25, then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Think about this, guys. Paul is now being saved by those who are trying to kill him. How God turns this around, God will make even your enemies your brothers and sisters. From the start of Paul's conversion all throughout his life, he's going to learn the importance of having other believers around him. Friend, you need to have other believers around you. All the way from Paul's conversion, being led by other believers, to Ananias coming and praying for him, to his escape. He's understanding that we need other people. That's the principle, is interdependence. We need each other. You need me, and I need you. Because what happens when you have direct revelation from God and you don't have any interdependence, you're independent, that creates spiritual pride, individualism, separation from others of the community of the faith. All these ministers that are like, I'm the man of God, no one can come around me, no one can touch me. That's not of God, that's not God's desire, that's not God's will. God wants us to be linked up in community, a part of community, whether you're in community here, whether you're in community at your church, whether you're in community in your family, you need to be a part of some sort of community because even Saul is going to learn that we need community. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Again, if two are lying together, they can keep warm. But how could one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. The devil wants to isolate you. He wants you alone. We need to stick together. Acts 9, man, I'm going long here. Acts 9, 26 through 27. We got to go faster on these guys. We're never going to get through the book of Acts if I take so long in every single chapter. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. This is Acts 9, 26 through 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him that he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him. And now he preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So the last disciples knew about him was in Acts 1. Remember in the beginning of this, preaching the opening words of the chapter are he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples now paul wants to fellowship with them and they're going like he's going to come undercover and kill us and barnabas is saying guys listen he's boldly preaching we got to stop being so skeptical and this is something i want to say to everybody because especially on youtube culture facebook culture we need to be less skeptical guys we have so many people who think this person's false this preacher's false this preacher's false and we just think everybody's false we write people off and it's not godly. Barnabas, when everybody was skeptical about Saul, Barnabas said, I'm going to bring him in. I'm going to help him out. I've seen him boldly preach Christ. And I'll tell you right now, there's far less false preachers than you think. If someone is boldly preaching Jesus, why are we so quick to count them out? If somebody is boldly declaring the gospel, why do we always want a heresy hunt and think everybody is false? I'm telling you right now, we need to be careful by thinking people are false, being afraid that that person's false, that person's false. Here's what happens in the body of Christ, why we have this mentality that everybody's false. It's because we don't understand different body parts. So we might look at one part of the body and say, oh, I don't like that part because it's not like me. But remember, the hand doesn't say to the foot. The eye doesn't say to the foot. The foot doesn't say to the eye. The body parts in the Bible, they don't tell each other, you're not important because you're not like me. Some are there to see. Some are there to speak. Some are there as a foot, a toe. The body has so many different body parts and the body of Christ is varied. So I don't look at one guy that has a different part of the body and say, well, that guy's not right. He's a heresy or he's false. He's a heretic because he's not a part of the body that I'm a part of. I just root him on and say, even if he's doing it with wrong intentions, Paul said, at least he's preaching. Now, of course, if they're denying the divinity of Christ, 
If they're divine, the resurrection of Christ, if they're denying that Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is God, these are all things that I don't debate with. Okay. You are false. If you do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, if you don't believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, these are all things you can't debate. But for the most part, I'm so sick of all of these people thinking everybody's false. Everybody's wrong. And you live under the shell thinking everyone's wrong, but you Everybody has a part of their doctrine or their theology that's not 100% in alignment and we need to humble ourselves and be open to correction, to be open to people saying you might not be right about this, you should reevaluate this or that and then go back and look the area of scripture and say, okay, I'm going to be humble and I'm going to admit I was wrong in this area or maybe I didn't have that right. And I'm always learning. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly saying, if I'm wrong, show me, teach me. I have pastors, I have leaders in my life that are willing to say, hey, what about this? What about this? Challenge my theology, challenge my thinking. And I'm constantly going back and saying, I used to believe this, but I don't believe this anymore. And that's all part of growing. So we need to stop being so skeptical about everybody in the church. Acts 9 Verses 28 through 30. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him out to Tarsus. In Jerusalem, Saul basically took up off where Stephen left off. Ministering among the Grecian Jews as if the former persecutor, who's Paul, felt that he needed to continue this martyr's work. So I want you to think about this. Saul is holding the clothes of those killing Stephen. Now Saul is saved and he's back at the same place Stephen was preaching and he's preaching the Hellenists almost as if he felt guilty, like I need to continue the work that Stephen the martyr did. And this is only God that can turn this around. Once again, Saul's brothers saved his life and brought him out of town sending him to Tarsus, which is his hometown. Acts 9, 31 through 32. Then the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, okay? It's like Saul's gone. He's not killing everybody. Now there's peace and they're edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. So now that Saul's on the side of the Christians, he's okay. He's now a believer. He's now preaching. There's a window of peace and Peter's able to travel and freely visit different Christian communities outside of Jerusalem. Acts 9, 33 to 35. There he found a certain man named um, Aeneas. I don't know. There's a lot of ways to say it, but Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So here's the first miracle on Peter's journey that took place between the junction of two trade routes, the Egypt to Babylonian road and the Joppa to Jerusalem highway at the town of Lydda. And a man named Aeneas had been disabled for eight years. And Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. And the man got up and his paralysis vanished. And he went around showing people what happened. And the Bible says the people of that city turned to the Lord. So here's why miracles are so vital in the church today, because they point people to God, because people are that are not seeing miracles in our churches. What is pointing them to God? Our clever speeches. Paul said, I didn't come with clever speeches. I came with demonstration and power. So these miracles, even in deliverance, you're going to see in the gospels, demons were cast out. And the Bible says that there was fear and awe and the people would turn to God and the people would believe the message. So understand that miracles are essential because they point people to God. Miracles do not point to our ministries. 
Deliverance does not point to Isaiah Saldivar. Isaiah can't deliver anybody. Miracles can't point to this. Miracles can't point to our... It points to Christ. It points to the Father. And that's why the Bible says, let your light shine before men so they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we do need miracles in the church because there's not enough things pointing to God. It's not just enough because the thing is, if we point to God and preach, that's great and we should do that. But not everyone's going to believe our preaching. And that's why in John 10, go read it. Jesus said... If you don't believe my preaching. Now, if they didn't believe Jesus, the son of God, okay, God incarnate, if they didn't believe his preaching, don't you think that they're not going to believe our preaching at times? So what do we do when they don't believe our preaching? Jesus said, if you don't believe my preaching, believe the signs and wonders, believe the miracles. So miracles do again, validate the gospel. Acts 9, 36 to 38 at Joppa. There was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near, Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring for him to delay in the coming to them. So 11 miles from Lydda and the Mediterranean coastal city called Joppa, now is part of Tel Aviv, lived a Christian woman named Tabitha, and was noted because she was loving, she was caring, and she was using her sewing skills to help the poor. She ends up dying. Her body's being prepared for burial, which according to Jewish, Jewish custom, she would have to take, this would have to take place before sundown, the day of her death. So we don't have much time before her burial and preparing her burial. And now they're saying, Peter, you need to come. They're asking Peter to come because they know Peter walks in the power of God. And sadly, these days, Christians are not known for walking in God's power. We should be the one that our friends and family go to when someone's sick in body, when someone's demonized, when someone's hurting, when someone's dead, we should go, we should say, I know someone who walks in the power of God. They heard Peter was in the next town over and Peter has the power to raise her from the dead from this is what I want in my life. I want to be the first person that they call when somebody dies. I want them to say, wait a minute, there's Isaiah in the next town over. He could raise the dead. He has the power of God. Now, all of these religious people, these religious pastors and preachers that don't cast their demons, don't heal the sick, don't raise the dead, do you think they're going to get called? And this is why a lot of them don't do miracles or deliverance, because nobody calls them because everybody knows they don't walk in the power of God. But here we have a guy named Peter who's walking in it, not just preaching it, walking in the power of God. And so we're going to call Peter because Peter raises the dead, because Peter preaches with power, because Peter can demonstrate I'm telling you, friend, there has to come a day where people have more faith in God's people than in medicine. We've lost that supernatural element as a church. And I believe that tonight God is restoring the supernatural back to his church and that God wants us to be a supernatural people. God wants us to be a supernatural church and to raise the dead. Now you might say, well, Isaiah, have you raised the dead? I've tried. I've tried. And that's more to say than some people. I've prayed for one dead guy. Uh, a family, it was a Catholic family. They said, Hey, can you come pray? And a friend of me, uh, my friend and me and a couple others went, we got around that dead body. And I believed with everything in me, he was going to come back from the dead. We laid hands on him. And I'm telling you, I could have sworn that he was heating up. I thought I felt him move. I was like, he's getting raised in this. And then we were praying, praying, praying. We were commanding him to get up, arise and all this stuff. About five or 10 minutes went by. The family came in and said, okay, you guys got to do your thing. And now we get, we got to do our thing. And so they ushered us out of the room. We were outside looking through the window because it was actually my friend who it was his uncle and they brought in a Catholic priest 
and they put coins over his eyes and they smoked him down. I don't know what they were doing, but they had a smoke machine and they were literally like they were hot box in the room with like ash and stuff. They were smoking him down. I don't know what it's for. Maybe they were preparing him for what they believe is purgatory. Some of you in the chat that are Catholic can tell me why they were smoking him down, but they were smoking him down. And I literally was so grieved. I'm like, we were so close to raising him from the dead. And you guys just smoked him back back to death with your ashes and your spray and the coins on his eyes and all the stuff that the Catholics were doing to him, the Catholic priest was doing to him. That was my only chance. Now, there's a lot of laws around deceased bodies, which is why it's not common to hear stories of raising from the dead. But critics always say, oh, if you could raise the dead, raise the dead. Okay, bring me a dead person. I believe that we have the power to raise the dead. There's no crazy teaching that you need. There's no crazy doctrine about it. You can raise the dead. Watch this. Acts 9:39 through 43. Then Peter rose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments, which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. So Peter gets everybody out of the room, kneels down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Verse 42, and it came known throughout all of Joppa and many believed on the Lord. So here we see another pattern. It became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed on the Lord, not Peter on the Lord. Verse 43, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. So Peter had seen Jesus raise the dead. He took her upstairs, got everybody out and almost word for word did exactly what Jesus did. Tabitha, arise. These were the words that Jesus used when he'd raise the dead. He would say, arise. And in that very moment, he presented her alive to the people. So friend, are you seeing the theme here? Miracles are happening and people are believing. That's the theme of tonight. That's the theme of this. Now we're going to pray for miracles and we're going to pray for people. And again, we got to get through these. I promise you the next teaching we do, we're going to get through more than one chapter and we're going to mix it up with other things because it's just taking us so long to get through this. A lot of this is storytelling, but I hope I'm making you excited for the Bible. I hope you're excited about reading the Bible, going through scripture and devouring the word of God. But the theme is this miracles happen and people believe this is Acts chapter eight, casting out demons and healing the sick. The city believed the city saw revival Acts chapter nine, the paralyzed healed and the dead raised. So again, you're telling me this is not for today. You're telling me that we don't have the same spirit that raised Christ. A lot of preachers preach that that's for them and not for now. But my question back to them would be, so there's not any more sick people. So there's not any more demonized people. So there's not any more dead people that need this. I would never. Now listen to me, chat, please. Because I say this with all conviction. I would never in a thousand years sit under a preacher, a pastor, or a teacher that says miracles are not for today. That says deliverance is not for today. That says the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today. That says raising the dead is not for today. Let me look at the words of Jesus. Matthew 10, 7 through 8. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. This is not an option. This is not the great opinion or the great option. This is the great commission and commandment. Here's what you're going to do as you go. Tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Okay, he didn't even say pray. He just said heal the sick. I'm telling you with Jesus in Matthew 10, 7. Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out devils. Now, was it just for the disciples? No, because if we go to the book of Acts, what were they doing? They were healing the sick. They were raising the dead. We just saw that. 
They were cleansing lepers and they were casting out demons. This is what they were called to do. And this is what we are called to do. Jesus commands the disciples to go do this. He says, you need to go do this. Now it's false doctrine to say, we only, only let them do it, but we don't need to do this. This is for today. It is for now. And if it wasn't, the Bible would not say you have the same spirit that raised Christ. You would, it would say you have a, a, a different spirit, a lesser spirit. You know, the disciples had special authority. Friend, let me just say this. Okay. And it's my broadcast. I could say whatever I want. The doctrine that says that the power of God, the disciples power and all that is different than what you have. You have a lesser power. You have a lesser Holy Spirit. You have a lesser fire. You have a lesser anointing than the disciples had. They had something much greater than you have is not scriptural. There's no verse in the Bible that says that it died with the apostles. There's no verse that says that we don't need to cast out devils. We don't need to heal the sick. It's not for you. If Jesus commanded the disciples to do it, okay, it's very simple. I am now a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower. That's what a disciple means. If the disciples were coming, well, it was just the apostles. No, it wasn't. The Bible says that in Luke 10, the 72 disciples, followers of Jesus went out. These were not all apostles casting out demons. The 72, if they went and did it, okay, you could take out Mark 16 because all the religious guys, well, Mark 16 wasn't in the original transcripts. And that's a slippery slope. I would never preach that because then you have to start saying, well, what else are you going to take out? If you're going to take out Mark 16, what else are you going to remove from the Bible that wasn't supposed to be there? Did you just rip it out of your Bible? Because it's in our Bibles today. It's not taken out. It's in our New King James Version. It's in our NLT. It's in the ESV. So don't tell me, well, it's not really in the original text just because you don't want to do it. Don't start telling me it's not in the Bible. But with that all being said, the whole idea that I'm a disciple, but I can't do what the disciples did is not a scriptural idea. It's not in the Bible. There's no verse for it. There's no text for it. There's no, you don't need a Bible scholar. You don't need to go through Bible college for four years. All you need is common sense to think if the disciples did it, I'm a Christian, which is a little Christ. That's what a Christian is, which we're going to show you the next teaching we do because it talks about Christians. And if Jesus did it, if the disciples did it, now Jesus said, which we could even go and prove it in scripture, Jesus said, do the works I did and even greater that you will do the works I did. So then the question becomes, what works did Jesus do? What works did Jesus do? Well, he preached, he cast out devils. Is that a work? You tell me. He healed the sick. Now Jesus says, greater works you're going to do. Okay. The same works and greater. So I'm called to do that then. It's not just a description of what Jesus did. It's the calling to me as a believer. Now, if you don't want to do that and you don't believe that you can live a powerless Christian life and you can live your entire life and never see a miracle and never cast out a devil and never, and live a boring Christian life. Cause really that's what it is. That's fine. Are you still going to be saved? Yeah. Bible says that you'll get there and your works will be thrown in the fire and you'll still barely escape the flames of judgment. But I'm not interested in this low level Christianity of how little can I do for God? I want to do what God has called me to do. It's very, very simple. We don't need to overcomplicate it. I know a lot of guys want to teach in Greek. Why are we teaching in Greek when we don't even do it in English? Okay. Go and make disciples. Go cast out devils. This is the book of Acts. I know we're an hour and 15 minutes in. This is the book of Acts. And this is what God wants to do in your life tonight. God wants you to demonstrate it. God wants you to demonstrate it. Every single one of you. You are called, you are anointed, you are chosen not by Isaiah, not by preacher, not by Bible scholar, not by a Greek text, not by a Hebrew, Hebrew grammarian or any of these things. You are anointed by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. He will disciple you to stop listening to false people that say 
you don't need to do this and you can't do this because you absolutely can and you absolutely need to. Everybody needs to be doing this. The world is broken, guys. We need more people out doing it, not less. We live in a broken world. We need to do this. Get on the front lines, not the sidelines. Stop trying to tell people from the stands how to run the ball. If you're in the stands not doing it, don't be telling people how to do it. This is your moment. This is your calling. God wants you to do it. So that's Acts chapter 9. I, I was actually tonight planning on going all the way through Acts chapter 11, but it's just too much. It's too long. We're already over an hour, and I want to pray with you. And I know there's people at 3 in the morning, and they're like, I want some prayer. So here's the thing. If you need the Holy Spirit tonight, you can get the Holy Spirit tonight. All you have to do is ask. That's how you receive the Holy Spirit. You ask, repent, ask him. And the Bible says he's a good father. He gives to those that ask. So tonight I want you to ask for the Holy Spirit. I know the Holy Spirit wants to fill you with power. I know the Holy Spirit wants to anoint you, empower you so that you can walk the Christian life.